Hi, Nat Doig here. Just a heads up that today's episode doesn't just feature scary ghost stories, it also includes some gruesome descriptions and discussion of violent deaths. Hello and welcome to Weird in the Wade, a podcast about all that's weird, wonderful and a little off kilter in the town of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire. Each episode, I'll tell you a tale of something strange and unique that has happened in this most English of market towns or its surrounding area. There's an older meaning to the word weird, which means to twist and turn. In Norse myth and in Anglo-Saxon times, this came to mean fate or destiny. All that was and is and all that is yet to be. Whether it's tales of ghosts or flying saucer hoaxes, the big cat of Biggleswade or the pot and poisoner, curious social history or the great swan mystery of 1935 will follow all the twists and turns and uncover fascinating stories that will speak to you today wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Weird in the Wade. It's the late 1990s, a dull Tuesday morning in October. Amanda has been working at the Golden Pheasant for a few months now. She's let herself into the pub and is busy getting the place ready for opening. She's still not quite used to that smell of sour booze and stale cigarette smoke that greets her each morning. Her boss, the landlord, is out at the bank. So when she first hears it, the sound coming from the bar, she's puzzled because she's the only person in the building. She puts down the toilet roll that she was restocking and listens. It sounds like someone singing. Her first thought is that the front door must have been left open and someone has stumbled in off the street. But why would they be singing? It's not even 11 in the morning. Weird, she thinks. She leaves the toilet and goes to investigate. Not scared, just confused. It's unmistakable now. There's someone singing in the bar. Amanda heads towards the sound, steeling herself to deal with this overly keen customer, hoping it doesn't become a confrontation. As she enters the bar from the passageway, the last few notes of singing drift into silence. She glances around the small snug room. Her heart starts to rattle because the room is empty. She sees no one. She walks over to the front door, tries it, but it's locked. No one could have got past her in the passageway. It's too narrow. She'd have seen them. She even looks under the tables and chairs, the settle and behind the bar, but there's no one in there. 
Amanda shrugs, and she decides that it must have been someone passing on the street singing. Singing very loudly, but that's what it must have been right. Right? When her boss gets back from the bank, there's been a mix-up with the crisps order, which puts the mystery singing right out of her mind. Amanda doesn't think about it again, until a couple of weeks later. This time, Amanda is clearing up after closing. The pot washer has gone home, and her boss has left to take his dog for a walk down to the river in the dark. He's usually gone for about 20 minutes. Amanda is standing in the passageway at the back of the pub when she again hears the singing. It's the same voice and song as before. She's sure of it. This time, though, she's determined to catch the culprit. So she treads very carefully along the passageway towards the bar. The singing gets louder. She holds her breath, her heart pounding. All the while, the singing continues. It's not a song that Amanda recognises. It's coming from the bar for sure, not outside. She can actually hear a group of men laughing as they walk by on the high street, and then a motorbike goes past. The singing continues throughout all of this, the sound much nearer to her than those noises from outside. She steps silently into the bar. It's dark, lit only by the eerie orange streetlight that seeps through the windows. She knows that there is no one in there. She knows this, but the singing is loud now. Definitely coming from a little way in front of her and to the right. She dares not turn her head to look, but she knows she must. She takes a deep breath. She slowly moves her eyes to the right. And it stops. The singing stops dead, and she flips on the light switch to her side, and the bar is suddenly bright. She is alone, but has that unmistakable feeling of someone having just left the room. She feels the air displaced around her, as if someone just brushed past. But they couldn't have. She'd have seen them. She spins around to look down the passage, but there is no one there, and the door at the other end is locked. Fifteen minutes later... Her boss returns to find Amanda nursing a brandy. She's reluctant to say what happened, doesn't want to look foolish. But something in her boss's calm face encourages her. It's as if he expected this, like he's dealt with finding his staff in shock nursing a brandy before. As she explains what happened a fortnight ago and then just now, she doesn't see anger or disbelief on her boss's face. Instead, he nods and smiles sympathetically. He pours himself a whiskey and he says that she is not the first. The first thing I need to tell you, Amanda, he says calmly, is that whatever you heard is completely harmless. No harm has come to anyone who heard or witnessed strange things in the pub. But you're not the first. And I'll admit, I've heard the singing too. Drifting up from the bar at night, when I'm in the flat, the first time I heard it, I came down to investigate. Honestly, I thought we'd locked someone in overnight and they'd help themselves and had just come blotto. But no, there was nothing. No one in the pub. I've heard it twice since. There's never anyone there. I know a former barman who heard it and a few customers and it's been really quiet. They've complained about singing, and yet no one in the bar has been making a sound at the time. It's not like we have music playing in here, is it? I 
I've heard footsteps too in the passage there. Great clattering footsteps, but there's never anyone actually making them. Not visible anyway. I was told when I took her over here that any funny goings on, you know, when you're just put on a new barrel but nothing comes out, when the taps get turned on by themselves, the odd glass falling off a table when no one is near it, that kind of stuff. Well, I was told that was all down to Morris, a former landlord here in the 1930s. I don't know if he was a singer. The other story I've been told, well, it's a darker one, an older one, about this place a hundred years ago or more, back in Victorian times. This pub was the town brothel, and well, a poor woman who worked in the brothel was run down by a carriage one night. Some say she was running away from here. Others just say it was a terrible accident. But they say her restless spirit is the cause of the haunting. But I don't know. It's just a story. But remember, none of it can harm you. It's just a bit odd. Amanda shudders. Odd is one word for it, she thinks. Hi, I'm Nat Doig and welcome to this Halloween special episode of Weird in the Wade, all about the Golden Pheasant pub in Biggleswade. Could it be the town's most haunted inn? The introduction you just heard is made up of several stories that have been told about the ghostly singing heard by staff and regular drinkers in the pub over the decades. It's a fictionalised account of those reports. I'm not aware of anyone called Amanda working at the pub. She represents all the staff and regulars who have had tales to tell. Similarly, I don't know if any of the landlords ever over the years have experienced spooky goings on themselves, but he tells the stories that I've heard about the pheasant. Because I've spoken with several people who have reported to me various stories which I used to create that opening sequence for you. More on that later. I have a big thank you to say before we dive into the episode. I'd like to thank the current staff and regulars at the Golden Pheasant who shared their thoughts and stories with me back in September. I joined them for an hour one Monday lunchtime and they were very generous with their time. And if any former staff or regulars are listening and want to contribute your own stories to the show, I will do an update on this episode. So please do get in touch with me at weirdinthewade at gmail.com or on social media. Just search Weird in the Wade. We're on Insta, Threads, Twitter or X and Blue Sky. Whilst researching for this episode... I experienced at least three occasions where my blood ran cold because of what I uncovered. This includes a possible explanation for the singing that is heard or for the persistent stories about it. I've also uncovered details of a terrible accident that did befall a 19th century prostitute in Biggleswade, which corroborates details of the ghost story I heard when chatting with the drinkers and staff at the pub. Details I'd not come across before in any of the other stories about this tragic death. 
hold tight because you're in for a twisty, turny, terrifying ride through ghost stories and history. But first, some important thoughts on ghost stories. I've noticed something with local ghost stories and I'm sure it holds up for other ghost stories too. They seem to fall into one of two categories which I think of as phenomena-driven or history-driven. I'm sure the wonderful academics who study this kind of thing have a proper name for it, but this is how I'd explain it. The Haunted Pan Stretcher story we covered in episode one is a phenomena-driven ghost story. The women who worked in the shop experienced some very unsettling phenomena. Those who heard their stories, the women who experienced the activity, then tried to find some historical context for it. So did I. But the phenomena came first. Any theories tying it to actual historical events or people has just kind of failed to materialise so far. A lot of famous poltergeist cases fall into this category, like the Battersea poltergeist, for example. But if we look at the Pot and Poisoner case, the history of Sarah Daisley definitely came first. The Wrestlingworth murders shook the whole country, not just the village, and it seems that strange phenomena that occurred after that point were attributed to the restless spirit of Sarah. Like an echo from a very real tragedy pulsing outwards through time. Just think how the children of the village kept alive Sarah Daisley's story in an age before the internet, so that 30 years ago, 150 years after the murders, the pot and poisoner was still remembered through the ghost story. The children of the village kept away from her cottage after night in case they came across her malevolent spirit or her phantom baby. Ghost stories attached to historical buildings like the Tower of London often fall into this history-led category. Sometimes the most thrilling ghost stories are ones where the phenomena comes first, but it is then successfully tied in with some long-forgotten historical events. It gives credence to the story somehow, whether you believe in the existence of ghosts or not. A sceptical interpretation to this might be to marvel at how events have been kept alive through ghost stories long after the facts of the real-life case have been largely forgotten. For those who believe in spirits, will see the historical evidence as proof of a basis for the haunting. And there are two ghost stories associated with the golden pheasant that fall into these opposite camps. One is phenomena-driven. One is a sad story of a tragic death. Both are entwined, yet I found two real news stories from 1870 and 1900 which are not connected in any way but relate to the golden pheasant's ghost sightings in very different and compelling ways. Are we dealing with a history-driven ghost story here, though the actual events have been long forgotten? Sometimes these kinds of tragic stories get altered in the recounting for good reason, for better storytelling reasons. Sometimes it's just time wearing away the corners, smoothing down the edges of the facts. But at the heart of the ghost stories, there's a real-life tragedy that is still being remembered and possibly still being experienced by the witnesses. There's been a plethora of phenomena 
reported at the Golden Pheasant over the years. And this pub was for a long time the premier location if you searched for hauntings in Biggleswade. It was featured in Damien O'Dell's Ghost Stories of Bedfordshire book 20 years ago. It features in Bedfordshire Library's Ghost Story pamphlet. It's included in several paranormal databases. If you ever ask on social media for local ghost stories to Biggleswade, the golden pheasant is always mentioned even before the haunted pound stretcher is. So let's have a look at the pub, the stories and the evidence I've uncovered. The Golden Pheasant It's not the oldest surviving pub in Biggleswade. That prize goes to the White Hart, which sits almost opposite the pheasant. The White Hart looks the part, all wood beams and dark diamond lattice windows... The pheasant looks unassuming in comparison. It's small, almost dainty, a bit crooked and painted a warm cream. It often has exuberant hanging baskets adorning its front, though currently it doesn't. Its sign is impossibly shiny and gold and stands out clearly on the high street. Inside, it is surprisingly small and cosy, with the bar taking up the back right-hand corner of the room as you enter from the high street. It's a simple bar space, tables, chairs, men sitting at the bar on high stools. It specialises in real ales. It's a beer drinker's pub. Opposite the front door is a long corridor leading out to the backyard and the pheasant's other entrance from Church Street. That entrance has a strange porch over a gate and a small barn-like building attached to the porch. I was told by drinkers in the pub that this building was once used as a morgue. The Pheasant was built in 1751 and survived the Great Fire of Biggleswade 30 years later, in some form at least. It was a shop and then in the 1850s was granted its licence as a pub and brewery. The brewery was eventually purchased by Sam Wells. In 1869, Walter Wren took over as licensee, along with his wife, and the Wrens were in charge when both tragedies struck. But let's look at each case separately, and then consider how they're tangled up together with the ghostly phenomena. As you heard in the opening portion of the show, the most prevalent story associated with the pheasant is that of ghostly singing. A story about ghostly singing in the pub was first told to me years before I started the podcast by a friend who has a relative who worked at the Golden Pheasant. This relative reported hearing singing coming from the bar when it was completely empty. They were at great pains to point out that there was no jukebox nor radio there at the time and that the TV was definitely not switched on either. This ghostly singing has been heard by many people who work or visit the pub, or so it is told. I'd also heard that the pub had previously had a brothel above it and that a woman who worked at the brothel had been killed in a horrific accident and that she had been reportedly seen in the pub in the past. Details on this haunting were more scant. Though the nature of the death was sometimes attributed to being run down by a carriage, out on the street. When I started researching this case, I never expected to find two actual historical events 30 years apart 
that could relate to both these stories, the ghostly singing and the accident. But I did. When I searched the newspaper archives for stories about the Golden Pheasant, I assumed I'd find mainly news about darts teams or maybe adverts for entertainment on a Saturday night. So, I'll be honest with you, when I came across a news article about a tragic death in 1900 associated with the pub, I was really intrigued. And then, as I read on, I discovered that the death related to singing in the pub. My blood ran cold. The story I found is so sad and almost trivial in its this could happen to you quality that it makes it even more poignant. The events took place on Friday the 13th of July 1900 at around 11pm at the public bar of the Golden Pheasant. Yes, Friday the 13th. It seems the night had been a fairly typical one. Mrs Wren, the landlady, was in the sitting room reading, though she had been serving drinks earlier. There were a group of regular drinkers enjoying each other's company, and as one headline put it, what happened on this normal evening was a shocking result of public house joking. In the main bar of the Pheasant that night was a young man named Arthur French. He was 20 years old, a year away from getting married. He'd been born in Ware in Hertfordshire and now boarded with the Becks, a couple in their 50s who lived on Back Street in Biggleswade, literally a stone's throw from the pub. Arthur worked as a fish cutter and curer. And young Arthur appears to have been a lively, confident lad who for entertainment that evening started singing a song. He was standing in front of the fireplace. In a time before jukeboxes and other electronic entertainment, singing was a popular pastime in the pubs. We don't know what Arthur sang, though the coroner investigating the death did inquire of a witness what the song was, but an answer was not forthcoming. The witness said he was more of a dancer than a musician and so did not know the name of the tune. But I wonder if Arthur, being just 20, was singing one of the latest music hall numbers, a song like Daisy Daisy, Give Me Your Answer Do. It was only a year since it had made its debut in the theatres and would have been popular with the young working class who enjoyed the music hall. Maybe it was particularly popular in Biggleswade with it being associated as a bicycling town. I can only speculate. Maybe young Arthur was into opera. We'll never know for sure. What we do know is that not everyone was so keen on either Arthur's singing or his choice of song. In the pub that night, there was also a 60-year-old man named William Robinson. Robinson has perhaps my favourite job description on a census form that I have ever read. In 1891, William is listed as being a chicken higgler and hawker. A higgler was like a peddler, as in someone who travelled the country selling his wares. Up until 1890, Biggleswade-born Robinson had worked as an agricultural labourer. Maybe now that the majority of his large family had left home or become established, he had branched out into the chicken business. His two eldest sons had done well for themselves, one becoming a groom, the other a blacksmith's assistant. His two eldest daughters worked as seamstresses. 
but William Robinson, who by all accounts knew young Arthur French and got on well with him, objected to Arthur's singing that night, or to the song. Witnesses described the whole scene as being good-natured, and it seems that William Robinson felt comfortable getting up out of his seat to dance around the young lad as he sang, dancing or moving in a silly or mocking way as if to tease him. I imagine a bit of dad dancing going on here. The mocking dancing not enough to stop French's song. Robinson accused French of not being able to sing and launched into his own song while standing in front of him. I can imagine the scene being played out today. Call that a song, Arthur. You want to be singing something traditional, tried and tested, none of this modern nonsense. Something like this. And so in the pub that night, we had a Victorian version of a rap battle, with each man competing with the other to sing their chosen song. French is described as good-naturedly pressing Robinson back down into his seat, putting the older man back in his place. Sit down, Grandad. Leave it to those that know how. But to no avail, Robinson sprung up again onto his feet, belting out his preferred ditty. This time, he skulked about the young lad, strutting like one of his chickens, to the amusement of those looking on. Though the impression given by the witnesses at the inquest was that no one was paying them that much mind, as they were being friendly and often joked in this way. This wasn't anything too out of the ordinary for the pheasant on a Friday night. Robinson, still not content to compete with the younger man, placed his hand on Arthur French's shoulder, and this is where the witness statements become a little bit hazy. What can be deduced is that both men began to grapple with each other, almost as if they were dancing, clowning about, taking the singing battle a step further, Except the tussle spilled out into the passage that runs through the back of the pub, and it was in the passage that one or both of them lost their footing, and they both came tumbling down with a crash on the brick floor. Their horseplay now causing the landlady, Mrs Wren, to get up from the sitting room where she was reading the newspaper to find out what the commotion was all about. Charles Albone had been called to help lift William Robinson up by French, who was unscathed after the fall. Robinson, on the other hand, was dazed and unresponsive. There were reports that he had a walking stick which had been snapped in two by the fall. It was unclear who had fallen on top of whom, though it was clear that, unlike French, William Robinson was not able to just get up and brush himself down. Mrs Wren tried to revive Robinson with a damp flannel. She knew he wasn't drunk. He'd not ordered more than half a pint all evening. She testified. He wasn't intoxicated. He was described as groaning and being unable to sit up in a chair properly. He was carried outside to the back of the pub into the yard with the hope that the fresh air might bring him to his senses. One witness said it was like he had had a seizure of some kind. Eventually, he was taken home by a couple of men and left in front of the fire in his living room. His wife Sarah doesn't appear to have been told that William was injured, or if she was told anything, it was that he'd taken a tumble. Sarah Robinson assumed her husband was drunk. He occasionally came home worse for wear with drink, less so now that he was older, but she'd seen him drunk plenty of times and she'd leave him to sleep in front of the fire when he was in that state. 
She'd called to her son to come help her with him, but her son, assuming his dad was just drunk again, refused. He had work the next day. It was only when Sarah woke the next morning and found that her husband had not got up or even moved to take off his shoes that she realised something terrible was wrong with William. A doctor was called, but sadly William Robinson, father of at least eight children and many more grandchildren, died just after lunchtime that day. As you can imagine, such a strange tragedy was the talk of the town. It appears that there were many rumours swirling. The inquest was held a week after the incident when memories were still fresh. The witnesses give consistent reports of what happened, though they differ in slight details. The exact time of the accident seems to be hard to pin down, anything from 10.45 to 11.30. Who helped Robinson up is also disputed. Some say it was French himself, others say it was Charles Albone. Sarah Robinson claims her husband had a black eye the following morning, but no one in the pub remembers seeing any bruising or swelling then. Dr James, who treated Robinson on the Saturday and carried out a post-mortem, agreed that there was bruising to Robinson's left eye. He also found a six-inch skull fracture from the left eye socket to above the left ear. Beneath the fracture was much pooled blood and a blood clot was also found. Death was attributed to the head injury and concussion. The doctor believed that the injury was consistent with William falling and hitting his head on a stone or brick floor, as had been described by the witnesses. The jury spent only a few minutes conferring and passed a verdict of death by misadventure. Much was made of the fact that Arthur French had volunteered to give evidence at the inquest and had done so in a clear and straightforward way. All the witnesses agreed that no tempers had been lost that tragic evening and that French and Robinson had just been fooling about. The older man had been teasing but in a good-natured way and French had not intended to hurt William Robinson. Arthur French had his whole life ahead of him. He was just 20. It seems the opinion of those there on the night was that his life should not be ruined by a silly bit of horseplay in the pub that went horrifically wrong. Though the newspapers hint that until the evidence was heard at the inquest, the town had other ideas as to what had happened. We never find out if the inquest truly quelled those rumours. The broken stick does make me wonder if being hit with such an implement could cause a six-inch skull fracture. I also wonder just how good-natured their dispute really was. We'll never know if the regulars in the pub played down the events in a bid to protect the young Arthur French. I think we can safely say, though, that French certainly didn't intend to kill William. But what we can't ignore is that 123 years ago, a dispute over singing in the pub ended in a tragic death. Is it the singing of William Robinson that is heard in the Golden Pheasant when the bar is empty? Does his spirit return to the site of his horrific accident and sing to his heart's content when no one can stop him? Or is it time somehow replaying the tragedy, competing singers' voices rippling through the years? Footsteps have also been heard in the passageway when there is no one there. The passage where William hit his head. Or has a fragment of folk memory kept this tragedy alive through a story about ghostly singing? What at first was remembered as a tragic death over a dispute about singing morphed into a spookier story. Whether it's the singing spirit of William Robinson, a kind of time slip, or a fragment of folk memory, 
have we solved the tales of the ghostly singing in the golden pheasant? Ah, if only it was that simple. You see, many of the reports do not say whether it was a man or woman's voice singing, just that it was a voice. But there are reports that definitely say that it is a woman who is heard singing in the pub. Another terrible accident. And there is a tale of a ghostly woman who haunts the golden pheasant, though why her ghost would be singing is unclear. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, it is said that this phantom is of a woman who worked in the brothel above the pheasant during the 19th century and who met a very gruesome end in a terrible accident. I'd seen one person say that she had been run over by a coach or carriage on Biggleswade High Street. So I did a search for carriage accidents throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries in Biggleswade, but nothing came up that fitted. There were a couple of accidents involving small children and cyclists with carriages, but none were fatal and none were linked to the golden pheasant. Now, one thing that was always stated in these stories was that the woman who died had worked in the brothel, as what now we would call a sex worker, but in the Victorian times she'd been described by the euphemism of an unfortunate or lady of the night, or simply just called a prostitute. So I searched for deaths with these Victorian keywords in Biggleswade, and experienced my blood running cold for a second time. Because I found news stories from 1870 reporting the tragic and gruesome accidental death of what the majority of newspapers called an unfortunate, and the young man who was with her. A few of the bolder newspapers referred to her as a prostitute. This poor woman and her customer or client did not die in a carriage accident though, They in fact died on the railway lines in Biggleswade, hit by a fast goods train as they tried to cross the lines just north of the train station. It seemed like I might have found the source for the tragic backstory for the second golden pheasant ghost. I could imagine that over the years, being hit by a train morphed into the more Victorian sounding being hit by a carriage. And well, trains have carriages, don't they? but I didn't have any evidence linking the case to the golden pheasant. Was it really the town brothel? It was one of the main things I wanted to ask the staff and regulars at the pub when I visited in early September, and they were able to fill in pieces of the puzzle for me beyond just that. All the regulars and staff confirmed that yes, the pheasant had been the town brothel. There was no doubt in their minds, it was just common knowledge. I felt more reassured, though I would love to find some actual evidence. I may have to scour 19th century police reports to confirm it, though. The next piece of information that I was given by the regulars and staff and an occupant of the flat above the pub was the third time my blood ran cold. Now, the men I spoke with had all heard the tale of the carriage accident, I explained that I had found no carriage accident, but I had found a train accident. They agreed with me that it could just be one of those things that had got twisted over time. Train carriage, horse-drawn carriage. We sat and contemplated our drinks for a while. 
I said I'd been shocked by the level of detail given in the newspaper articles about the accident because it was far more graphic than would be written about today. It was then that the occupant of the flat above the pub said, Well, that particular ghost, she's headless. Poor thing was decapitated in the accident. And my blood ran cold because that is one of the many gruesome details given in the newspapers about the horrific accident. The poor woman was decapitated by the train. Yet I'd not heard that detail in the ghost story previously. I think the colour actually drained from my face as I sat there at the bar. No one I spoke to at the pub had actually seen or heard anything relating to the haunting or any other at the pheasant themselves. Well, apart from one, he claimed straight away that he'd not experienced anything spooky while living in the pub, but he did say that his dog didn't like to go anywhere near the door at the top of the stairs to the cellar. It seems that, a bit like the fact that the pub was once the town brothel, it's just always been common knowledge that the poor woman who died in the accident haunts the building still. I'd love to know if anyone has actually seen this ghost or experienced anything in the pub beyond the strange singing or footsteps. The story of the headless ghost who worked in the brothel and died in an accident is so well known it has to originate somewhere and maybe it's an example of a real historical event being remembered but as a ghost story. So who was this poor woman killed so horribly and what really happened that fateful night in 1870? Her name was Anne Larman, and she was born in Henlow, a few miles south of Biggleswade, in around 1840. The 1841 census records her address simply as opposite the gravel pits. She's a middle child in a family of at least six children. Her father Joseph is described as a gardener or agricultural labourer, and her mother is named Mary, and she works at home as a straw platter until her death at some point in the 1850s. In 1861, when Anne is 20, she's still living at home, working as a straw platter with her older sister, her father now a widower. Straw platting was a local home industry. The straw plats were used for hat making. In the 1850s, it was estimated that around 50,000 women and children were working as straw platters in Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, Buckinghamshire and some parts of Essex and Suffolk. Straw platting featured in the 1851 Great Exhibition and the hats made from the straw were exported all over the world. It was one of the few home-based industries left at this time in rural England. It was hard work though and as the straw was treated with sulphur and was then passed through the front teeth in the process of plaiting, it did a lot of damage to the teeth of young children and adults who worked in the trade. We don't know what made Anne leave her home in Henlow and seek work in Biggleswade instead. She doesn't appear to have ever married, and what we do know is that in 1870 she was considered by the inquest into her death to be an unfortunate, or a prostitute. How they come to this conclusion, I am not quite sure. The inquest reports are fairly scant on details about Anne, but it seems to be that it was just common knowledge, and that was her line of work. Her brother Edward 
tells the jury that he identified his sister from her remains, which had been carefully collected by the railway workers in the small hours of the Tuesday morning. This must have been an extremely distressing ordeal for him. He confirms Anne was about 30 years of age and born in Henlow, though she lived in Biggleswade at the time of her death. Some newspapers also report that Mrs Matilda Rook of Palace Street, which is close to the railway station, gave evidence that Anne had visited her on the evening of Monday the 13th of June until about 11pm, when there came a whistle from outside and Matilda heard Anne talking with a man who she then left with. Although the newspapers only comment on Mrs Rook's husband's line of work as a labourer on the railway, the census says that she was a straw platter and I wonder if Anne wasn't also working some of her time in her old trade also. Is that how she knew Matilda Rook? We'll never know. But Matilda was the last person still alive to see Anne that night. Anne was not the only casualty of the accident. The man she met with, Thomas Baston, was also killed. The newspaper reports say he was a carpenter originally from Oxford. I can't find any definitive records for a carpenter with that name from Oxfordshire, so I don't know how old he was. The little we know is that a fellow carpenter named Robert Wormsley had known Thomas for three months. He had the grim job of identifying the body. He confirms Thomas was a fellow carpenter who worked at Lord Peel's mansion up at what's now the RSPB lodge in Sandy. Thomas clearly knew Anne Larman as a witness, saw them together back at the end of May during the Whitson holiday. But sadly, that is all we know about Thomas's life. On the Monday night, he was seen by three men near to the new inn on the Market Square. He stopped to speak with them a while before heading off through the new inn yard towards Palace Street. One witness claims he saw Thomas meet with a woman on the other side of the yard, not knowing exactly where Matilda's rook house was. I can't be sure if this was Anne, but it seems likely. From Palace Street, they must have walked towards the train station. They clearly wanted to cross the railway lines. The safest crossing would be back in town over the railway bridge, but it seems that they were heading towards either the fields on the other side of the railway lines or possibly towards the pub on London Road that wasn't far from the workhouse. If this meeting was indeed for an illicit assignation, then this would explain why they didn't want to be seen together in the centre of town. There was no railway bridge or official crossing at the railway station in Biggleswade at the time. I'm guessing that to get from one side of the station to the other, to the different platforms, passengers had to cross the lines in the station. This was far more common thing to do back in the 19th century. And 19th century maps clearly show the four railway lines running through Biggleswade as they do today, but there was no bridge at the station. Anne and Thomas decided to cross the railway just north of the station. They got halfway across and a slow goods train came past them heading south towards Arsey. It was then 11.22 that the fast, non-stopping goods train to Manchester and Liverpool came through, hitting them both where they stood. The driver was only aware of the accident when glass from a headlamp, broken in the collision, hit him in the face. He stopped the train and walked back down the rails to find clothing, 
and then body parts strewn along the line. I'll spare you the details which the Victorian newspaper print in full. Thomas and Anne's remains were gathered together and taken to the porter's room at the railway station, where first a doctor and then the hurriedly convened inquest jury observed them. The doctor reports at the inquest that Anne's head was completely severed from her trunk, so we know that part of the story is in fact true. Then the witnesses who identify the bodies are also shown the remains. I am quite amazed by the almost ruthless efficiency of the Victorians. The accident happened on the Monday night at 11.22. By the afternoon of Tuesday, less than 24 hours later, an inquest has been heard and the deaths declared accidental. However, the jury add a special recommendation to their verdict. They recommend that a safe crossing like a bridge is added to the railway line at the station to avoid this kind of accident happening again. Sadly, it was some decades until such a crossing was added to the railway at the train station, well into the 20th century, I believe. It's a tragic story of a life cut short, but there's nothing explicitly linking Anne Larman to the golden pheasant, just the manner of her death and the fact that she is reported by the press as being a prostitute or unfortunate. If the golden pheasant was a brothel, why wasn't she working there that night? Maybe she did work at the golden pheasant sometimes. Maybe if she liked a customer though, she'd sometimes see him on her own terms away from the pub and that way not give a cut of her earnings away. I doubt we'll ever find out the truth, but it seems quite a coincidence that there is a ghost story about a headless woman haunting the pheasant, a woman who worked in the brothel there, and who came to a grisly and untimely death in a terrible accident that decapitated her. And there's a real woman named Anne, who was a sex worker, but was also a sister and a daughter, had a friend named Matilda Rook, who plaited straw for other ladies' bonnets and was killed by a fast goods train in a horrific accident that severed her head from her body. But is Anne our singer? Some say it is a woman who sings, but why would Anne's ghost be singing? And I was told a story when I visited the pub that adds another layer to this story of the ghostly singing and rules out Anne and William Robinson completely. This story happened at least 17 years ago because it involves a former resident of the flat above the pub. The current occupant told me this tale, though he has not experienced anything like it since he's been living there. The former occupant reported, waking one night after falling asleep on the settee in the living room, to the sound of singing coming softly from the corner. They lived alone in the flat and so maybe even more disconcerting for them. The singing was that of a child. They were shocked by the sound more than scared, shocked and confused. They looked over into the corner of the room where the childlike singing was coming from and saw a little girl just sitting there. I don't have a description of the girl. The story was told to me in a way which made me think that the person who witnessed it was scared, yes, but mainly shocked. Like, what the hell? What's a little girl doing in my living room? And then she just disappeared. 
The little girl has not been seen or heard since. It does feel like we've got a whole choir going at the Golden Pheasant now. There's William and his singing battle. There's possibly Anne, her head tucked under her arms, singing away. And now some little ghost girl of bygone days singing softly to herself in the dead of night in the corner of the living room. No wonder the pub doesn't need a jukebox or music piped into the bar. Conclusions What really thrilled me about this case was that after reading and being told the initial ghost stories about singing being heard in the pub, I was able to locate an actual tragic death that was linked to singing. I can't see that one being a coincidence. I really can't. How many deaths are linked to singing that you can think of? I can't think of a single one until I came across this story. I don't know if it's William's ghost or some kind of time slip phenomena, but I know that the rational explanation is that it's a story half remembered that somehow warped into a ghost story and I can just imagine how that came about. Picture it now, a dark winter's night in 1910. Regulars of the pheasant are sharing stories and Someone says, Remember that night William Robinson died after getting into that ruckus over singing here? Aye, it was a terrible tragedy, a terrible one. He liked a song, did William. I can hear him now. Fast forward to the late 1930s and some younger men, sons of the men chatting back in 1910 maybe, are sharing stories themselves, maybe to distract themselves from the eve of the Second World War. Morris, the landlord, is listening on as he polishes glasses. My dad used to tell a strange story about a chap who died here on account of singing. Oh yeah, I heard that one too. Old Arthur French, the fishmonger, he was involved, I heard. Yeah, my dad always said you could hear that chap who died singing, you know, hear his voice haunting-like. And fast forward to the 1970s, and now it's a haunting, not just a haunting remembrance of the singing, Time wears away the corners of the story, buffs up the edges. We have the singing ghost. Except I've met someone who knows nothing of William Robinson and Arthur French and whose close relative swears that she heard singing coming from that bar when no one was in there. There is a phenomenon being reported which is backed up by historical events. And that's what I just find really intriguing. And what of poor Anne Larman and Thomas Baston? Well, the ghost story was never phenomenon-driven. I've not read about or spoken with anyone who's seen a headless woman in the pub or experienced anything that's linked to the events. Instead... I think here we have a tragedy remembered and entwined with the ghost stories associated with the pub. We'll never know if Anne ever worked at the brothel at the Golden Pheasant or drank there, but it's likely she may have had a connection that she was associated with the pub. If you have any information about the haunting at the Golden Pheasant, please do get in touch. Contact details are in the show notes. One thing that connects both deaths that is a little spooky is that they both took place on the 13th of the month. In fact, Friday the 13th of June 1900 was unlucky indeed for William Robinson. 
Another connecting factor is that they were both deaths which technically could have been prevented if William and Arthur had not got so rowdy, William would not have fallen and hit his head. If Anne and Thomas had crossed the railway line in town over the bridge, they'd have not been hit by a train. They were untimely, preventable deaths, and maybe that's why they lived on in people's imaginations, or maybe it's why their spirits cannot rest. And one last thing. On my visit to the Golden Pheasant, I was told one other ghost story. It's not about the pheasant, but about another pub, now closed down and converted into housing. The chap sitting next to me at the bar told me the story first and promised that his mate would be joining him in the pub in a few minutes. I was to ask him about the story when he arrived as corroboration of the details, as they had both witnessed it. A strange incident happened at the Coach and Horses on Shortmead Street in Biggleswade about 15 years ago. It was a normal afternoon and they were only one pint into their drinking, so in no way were they drunk. In an alcove in the pub there was a fruit machine. No one had been paying it any attention. It had just been standing there idle since they'd arrived. Lights flashing, but nothing that drew their attention. Until that was that the fruit machine started moving. Moving back and forth, all by itself. They described it as rocking violently like it was dancing. Nothing in the pub was moving at all. Just the fruit machine. There were no lorries going past on the road outside. There wasn't an earthquake or earth tremor. It was just the fruit machine rocking backwards and forwards as if it was about to launch itself across the floor. And this wasn't the loud rumbly noise and movement you get when you hit the jackpot. This was the machine physically jumping forwards and backwards. Everyone in the pub witnessed it and was stunned. After what they felt was a long time, but was probably a minute, the fruit machine stopped rocking and went still again. A few of the drinkers then got up to have a look at it. I can imagine them approaching this dancing fruit machine quite tentatively at first in case it started stomping around again, but it didn't. They tried to move it to see how easy it was to tip it or rock it backwards and forwards, and they couldn't. The fruit machine would not budge. When the chap's mate did arrive at the pheasant, I asked him about it, only saying, I've heard you've got a strange story to tell about the coach and horses. He didn't need any prompting from his mate and immediately retold the fruit machine story, saying it was a really strange thing to witness. It's not the only tale of a pub or an item in a pub shaking. In a future episode, I'm going to tell the story of the bell at Odell, which was plagued by earthquakes in the 1840s and investigated by scientists, magistrates and doctors of the day. The village has a fascinating history which also includes devilish claw marks on the church door. And talking of devilish claw marks on a church. Our next episode, due out on Monday the 27th of November, is about an infamous Bedfordshire church which found itself the subject of salacious tabloid newspaper stories throughout the 1960s until the 1980s. So Mary's old church at Clop Hill was reputedly the site of devil worship, desecration, 
and ghostly goings-on. But is there any truth in those tales? And what has become of this parish church that was left to ruin on a hilltop in Bedfordshire? Find out next time on Weird in the Wade. I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode as much as I did researching and making it. Just a quick note on the ghostly song I chose for William Robinson to sing. It's quite a unique song to Bedfordshire. I decided that if young Arthur French was singing something modern, I needed William's song to be older, more traditional. It was in a search for traditional songs associated with Bedfordshire that I stumbled across the Bedfordshire May Carol. Bedfordshire is a county that's often forgotten or overlooked by folklorists, and so it can seem as if it's a county without much distinct folklore or traditions. And although May Carols would have been widespread, it is this Bedfordshire one that has survived, So I was excited to find something unique to Bedfordshire for once. You see, caroling wasn't just for Christmas. And over a hundred years ago and before, carols were sung at May celebrations like Maypole dancing and May Day festivities as well. Youngsters would roam the villages singing carols for entertainment and gifts of money or food. These carols were about spring, nature and God's great creation. The Bedfordshire May Carol can be sung with mention of God, but a slightly bawdier version doesn't mention God at all. Instead, the young man sings to his sweetheart of his May branch being but a sprout, but well budded out by the work of my own hand, rather than the work of God's hand. The Bedfordshire May Carol has survived and there's links to versions of it on the blog, including one held by the British Library, recorded in the 1950s, where an elderly woman sings her version of it whilst making lace. I'll probably revisit the Bedfordshire May Carol and other musical stories in a future episode. I am certain there are more musical ghosts out there, but you can definitely find out more on the show notes in the blog. And that's at weirdinthewade.blog. Thank you so much for listening. And I have a special shout out and thank you to Abby, who supported the podcast this month by buying us a coffee on Kofi.com. Thank you, Abby. If you have any suggestions or comments, please do get in touch at weirdinthewade at gmail.com or on social media. Just search Weird in the Wade and we're on Instagram, threads, Twitter or X and Blue Sky. If you haven't already, it would mean a lot to me and the podcast if you could follow, rate or review the show wherever you listen. It really does help other people find the show. I know I say it every time, but it really does make a difference. And thank you to everyone who has rated the show so far. It's brilliant to know that the podcast is being enjoyed. And as mentioned earlier, I do have a Kofi page where you can buy the podcast a coffee. The money is used for buying equipment or putting towards travel costs or buying those I interview a coffee to say thank you. Links are in the show notes. Today's episode was researched, written and presented by me, Nat Doig. 
Special thanks go to the staff and regulars of the Golden Pheasant Pub for your stories and your time. Theme music is by Tess Savagir and all additional sound effects and music are by Epidemic Sound.